Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. Today I have on with me Dr. Mike T. Nelson. This is a, an episode that I've been waiting for a really long time to record and was really looking forward to talking to Mike. We talked about metabolic flexibility, which is basically your body's ability to use fats and carbohydrates and switch between the two as an energy source, but we'll talk about more, a bit more about that in the episode. And then we also talk about heart rate variance which is something we'd also talk about. So heart rate variance is, is things that the Aura Ring or some other devices like Apple Watches and things, I think they start attracting now and it's becoming kind of trendy. And uh, we, we touch on those things and look at the science behind them. So if you want to get on a natural bodybuilding course, that's free. Again, it's in the show notes, so you can check it out there. But other than that, please subscribe, leave a review, all that good stuff. Without further ado, let's get into this episode with Mike T. Nelson. So, Mike, thanks for joining the podcast today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I've been listening to your stuff for a very long time, a couple of years now at this stage. I, I, I don't know how I came across you first, but I, I think I heard you first talking about the heart rate variability. I'd never heard of it previously. And, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, did, did a lot of deep dive into that and uh yeah re- really interesting but we'll, we'll get into that so for those who perhaps may not know you who you are can you please introduce yourself and your background that'd be great sure um dr mike t nelson i've been doing probably health and fitness stuff for oh boy, probably coming up on at least over two decades now like most people probably started lifting just because i was a six foot three 156 pound eel shaped rake looking person <laughs> and started doing that in college and took more classes because I thought it was super interesting. And then I did a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science, minor in Chemistry and Math. And I ended up actually doing uh, Mechanical Engineering, did mostly Biomechanics. And that took another about four and a half years to do a Master's in that. Got done, thought I was done going to school. I did five years in a PhD program in Biomedical Engineering. Decided I was tired of doing math. So I switched over to the PhD program in exercise physiology and oddly enough, got stuck doing more math, looking at <laughs> metabolic flexibility and heart rate variability. And then I started training people in 2006 is when I officially started. Probably did several years before that of the typical thing of just, you know, trying to write programs for people and train people for free, which doesn't really go so well since neither one is <laughs> all that committed. And then I've been training people mostly online now for, oh man, almost 10 years now, I would say. I'm probably getting pretty close to that, eight years for sure. And I teach for the Kerrig Institute. They do a lot of clinical neuroscience. I'm an associate professor there, and I'm an adjunct at Rocky Mountain University. And then I have two courses I did, which is the Flex Diet Certification and the Physiologic Flexibility Certification. So you got a, you got a lot on your hands there. Yeah, it's been you get time a little busy and, you know, lift odd objects and listen to death metal and kiteboard <laughs> as much as I can too. <laughs> yeah, that, that's nice. Yeah, you, you're, the state where you are now is pretty open, right? There's no restrictions or anything like that. Texas isn't really too many restrictions right now. Um, I'm it, To be 100% sure, honest, I'm from Minnesota and we're headed, we're driving back up there, so... I haven't even looked to see what it was. I mean, when I left, gyms had been open for a while with some restrictions. Uh, I'm pretty lucky. I, like, 10 years ago, converted my garage into a gym. So I do some private stuff there. Once in a while, people will, will fly in. We'll do some testing and stuff. So I've been I've been able to do most of my exercise and everything there the, the entire time, which has been super nice. Yeah. That, that's the goal for me as well. I mean, I have some equipment at home, but I, I live in apartments, so there's no... Oh, it gets to be kind of hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I haven't stepped foot in a gym since 2020. Um, oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, actually, that, that's a lie. I, I was in Brazil for a week in January, so everything's open there. But in, in this country... Uh, it's still pretty closed there now? Yeah, the gyms are open in a month, so, I mean, it's... Oh, wow. It doesn't actually seem that bad when it's been locked for so long. A month seems quite short. Right. <laughs> usually, you, you, would, you would usually go crazy if you thought the gym was going to be closed for. Usually, when the gym is like closed for like 
reconstruction or like they're bringing in new equipment. It's like two days at the gym. I can't believe it. What? But, uh, What's going on? Crazy exactly. people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'm uh, kind, of, kind of used to it now. Um, but that's interesting. You did. So did you do two PhDs or did you swap in between? Or you did No, two I did the, the five years in the PhD program. I hadn't started officially research yet. I actually completed all the classwork except for two classes. And at the time, I was working for a medical device company. So I worked for a medical device company for 10 years looking at implantable pacemakers and defibrillators and other uh, cardiac medical technology which oddly enough uses a heart rate variability and a bunch of other things. So my thought was just to kind of keep going down that path. And I just literally just started taking, you know, exercise physiology for fun. I enrolled in a 400 level class when I did my, my master's just literally to take it for fun. I took anatomy and physiology using cadavers as part of my undergrad. So the hard part is you get five years into a program. You're like, oh, I'm so far invested in this program. I don't want to, just drop everything and then have to, in essence, start over again. Mm. But then I realized that, eh, that's probably a, a better path to do that. So I dropped out of that program. And that's when I went over to the exercise physiology department, which unfortunately meant I had to start taking classes all over again. I had to start research again uh, from scratch and get everything published. So just the exercise physiology portion of uh, which I did complete my PhD and took seven years full time. Well, that, that's the longest I've ever heard anybody use. It was, it was a pretty brutal, horrible experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I'm sure you, you learned, you know, you learn along the way you, that extra, those extra years you've, you learned some stuff, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, I guess then we'll start off with the, you know, what what I re- was really interested when I heard, heard you speaking first was about the metabolic flexibility. So it's a term that we often hear with, say, endurance sports and trying to increase, you know, maybe fat oxidation or, or mm-hmm. say, fat fat usage at a higher pace in, in marathon runners or something like that. But do you want to explain in your words what you consider metabolic flexibility to be? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, especially in the fitness the realm and even in the physique athletes a little bit, you'll, everybody kind of has their macronutrient preference of, you know, oh, no, you have to do, you know, high carbohydrates, super low fat diet, or no, you got to go the other extreme and do like a ketogenic approach that's super high fat, super low uh, carbohydrates. And to me, the reality is for for people who are healthy, unless you're dealing with some type of disease or pathology that you're working with your physician through, you want the ability to use both to the highest degree, right? I want the ability to use a lot of carbohydrates because that's going to get me the highest performance in the gym and be able to lift more and be able to do more volume, do a higher percentage of one rep max. Um, however, I still do want the ability to use a fair amount of fat as a fuel. Uh, when I'm just hanging out during the day or potentially low, lower intensity cardio, which we can talk about, um, and just to be a, a healthy human being. So you want the ability to use carbohydrates to the highest degree. You want the ability to use fat to the highest degree. And then you want to be able to switch back and forth between the two, depending upon what you're doing. So if you're just you know hanging out, chilling out, yeah, fat's going to be a better fuel. If you're lifting super intensely, then carbohydrates are going to be a better fuel. So it depends upon uh, what you're actually doing at that time. Mm. So if we kind of remove, say, people with obesity, because I know a lot of research on that would be related to obesity, um, and and people often misrepresent data taken from that and apply Mm -hmm. to a healthy population. Within, Within a, say, a healthy population or people who are, you're training, exercising, eating well. Can can we adapt that, and does that affect one's body composition or energy levels or, or anything? Yeah, it's a good question. So when I initially started looking at it, I was like, oh, okay. Well, like you said, if, if someone is just healthy, aren't they already metabolically flexible? And if they are, then who really cares if we're not talking about pathologies? And if you pick up most physiology textbooks, you can look up uh, something called the crossover theory, which is Brooks and Mercier is 1992. And it just says that as I approach higher intensity exercise, I'm going to use less fat and I'm going to use more carbohydrates. But what people probably don't appreciate is that that's an average of a, a bunch of people from a study. If we look at other studies that have said, hey, 
let's just grab some recreationally trained, you know, people from the population that's healthy and let's test them to see how well they use fat at lower to moderate intensity exercise. And when you do that, uh, I did one study on that that was published. Uh, Gadecki did one study. Uh, Helges did one study in 1999. What you find is how well people can use fat during those conditions varies from about you know 23 to 93%. So in English, that means that some people, and again, these are all recreational athletes. These are all generally healthy people. Some people are already really good at using fat at low to moderate intensity. Some other people are pretty darn horrible at doing that. So we find that there actually is a fair amount of variability, at least on uh, the fat use end of the spectrum. So then you'd be like, okay, well then how do you identify who those people are? If we can train that up, do we see benefits? I would argue if you're better at using fat, I think that does confer some uh, health benefits. In terms of pure body comp, mm, not necessarily directly um, per se, because at the end of the day, you know, calories are kind of like my buddy Ben House says is your, your trump card. Those are kind of obviously the main thing that's going to move a lot of stuff. However, what I've noticed is if people are better at using fat as a fuel, I think they have more options and compliance is easier. So they may decide, okay, I'm going to do maybe a 10-hour fast overnight or a 12-hour fast. They may do a longer period of time without any food. Okay, I can use body fat and I can use fat during that time. It's not a big deal. I don't get super hungry. I don't feel like I'm going to nod my arm off. And I just think that the compliance to stay within whatever calories they're at, I've just noticed tends to be easier and they're, they're less of the, the kind of white knuckling their way through all of it too. Mm. And just for people watching, this is a pure coincidence. I actually have, uh, oh, I don't know if you can see it there. It's uh, like not the, quite. Yeah. Can you see the crossover? That looks like the crossover effect. Yeah, yeah there you go. I, Perfect. I, I, did, I did not open the page. I, I literally just have this text <laughs> opened. So it's just a pure coincidence. Um, but yeah, that's that's what you, we learned. Like, you know, at a, at, even at a master's level with, with uh, working with elite athletes is, is you know, this kind of, you, you do some equations by doing, uh, you know, getting VO2 and VCO2 and, and plugging that yep. into some. R-E-R. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess then if, you know, I think, you know, even firsthand, if you, you, and you probably experienced it with people as well, is that you know, they go a period, those who maybe burn carbs or, or say preferentially burn glucose at a, a lower kind of energy or a lower kind of exercise intensity or just not exercising, they, they're the ones who can't really fast without feeling like they're going to die for a few hours. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they have low blood sugar or, or whatever. Does that then, and I think this is where people often can, make you know two plus two equals five is then oh okay, okay so i can oxidize fat quite well so or, or at these lower intensities i oxidize fat very well therefore i should only be exercising at this intensity like doing my, my aerobic work at this intensity to burn maximum body fat and also you know maybe then a higher fat diet because i'm oxidizing more fat or burning more fat that 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 that's then better than for fat loss right so mm-hmm. It gets a little bit confusing. So the so the first part is if people go on a higher fat diet, right? So they did some um, studies like uh, Dr. Jeff Bullock did on the FASTER study that they took people who were pretty high-level athletes. Most of them have been kind of ketogenic. And the short version is they literally found higher levels of fat oxidation than they had ever reported before. So on one hand, you're like, well, that's pretty cool. You don't get to rewrite physiology textbooks all that often. Um, but they were consuming a large amount of fat. They did have some fat before uh, the exercise, and they were exercising for you know three out three plus hours, staring at a wall on a treadmill, you know at 63% of VO2 max. So they were at a, a high moderate uh, pace. Now again, for a competitive endurance athlete, that's definitely not a pace where you're going to win any races per se. And because their diet is much higher in fat, and especially if you give them some type of fat before the exercise, when you look at only uh, things through a metabolic cart, so everyone has seen a little hose that you breathe in, and it goes out into this computer-looking thing, and it spits out all these numbers. Those numbers, like you were saying, the RER for breath by breath, will tell you the percentage 
of fat and carbohydrates that you're using at that point. And it is true, like in that study, they did see very, very high percentage of fat was used most of the time. Now, the caveat is without a tracer study, you don't know where that fat came from, especially if you have uh, feeding involved with it, right? So when you give someone uh, fat from a meal, at some point, some of it's going to be the fat that they just consumed. Some of it's probably going to be uh, intramuscular triglycerides, so little tiny fat droplets stored next to the muscle. Uh, some of it may be you know, other adipose tissue that's released into the bloodstream that gets kind of burned. Just depends on the in intensity of exercise, how long it goes, different factors like that. But people will look and they'll go, oh, look at my RER. It's saying that I'm burning this super huge percentage of fat. So that automatically means that I must be getting significantly leaner. Yeah, not necessarily, right? Um, again, it goes back to, you know, the amount of calories in versus out. And then below that it gets into even like stuff like fat balance and everything else. So I do think that fasted exercise does have some benefits. I would say, though, in the physique community, it's probably been well overstated <laughs> what those benefits are. And then now I know you've got kind of a backlash of some people that are like, no, fasted cardio is the stupidest thing you could ever do. Like, don't waste your time on it. And there's only, you know, Brad Schoenfeld is probably the only person who's done one study that's looked at body composition from fasted cardio over six weeks. Didn't see a huge difference with that. Um, but if you look at the total amount of calories that are being burned, you wouldn't really expect there to be a, a massive effect. So my bias is that I still like fasted cardio. I think it has a benefit, but a lot of the benefits are also just because with most clients, it's easier to do. It's like, what do I need to do beforehand? Nothing. Oh, I'm going to go for a fasted run. What do, what do I need to do? Really nothing. Put your shoes on, just start running, right? Because you're at a low to moderate intensity. You don't need to do a massive warm up beforehand. And so it's just an easier thing to do. If I'm really trying to get ultra lean, well, I kind of maybe hedge my bets on, you know, burning a little bit more fat in a fasted state. Yeah, I think that can be useful. Again, like anything, you can also get super crazy and people go way too far. And they're like, oh, I got to do my three hours of cardio a day. And it's like, no, you're, you're probably not, you're probably now seeing the detrimental effects uh, from doing that too. Um, the other caveat I would add is that some people's performance will drop off a fair amount. So you want to look at what is their performance still doing the exercise. Because people will say, oh, we've got these fed versus not fed studies. And look, if we feed them beforehand, their performance is a little bit better. Therefore, they're burning more calories. But most of the time in those studies, those people were used to higher levels of carbohydrates, were used to more frequent feedings also. But if you look at the performance of what you were doing, as long as that's still pretty good, again, we're talking about intermediate to easy type work, you're probably going to be fine. Um, so all that to say, I think faster cardio is beneficial. That's kind of my bias. I don't think it's going to be the magical thing that's going to rip seven pounds of body fat off you in 17 weeks or anything like that. Um, but I do find up to a point it is easier. And I do think there are maybe some slight benefits with it. But like most things, I think, especially in the physique community, it becomes very polarizing, right? It used to be, oh, this is the thing that strips body fat off, and now it's kind of swung the other direction, and I think the answer is, you know, somewhere mm. in the in the middle. Yeah, and I think with, like, traditional traditional type of cardio within the physique-based community is quite low intensity anyway, and you, you right. think of the, the you know, 300-pound bodybuilder, uh, Ronnie Coleman watching his TV while he's right. walking on the treadmill. <laughs> I mean, even even if in a fed state, he's probably burning major, you know, majority of the substrate being used is probably fat anyway, even though he's because the intensity is so low. Um, right. So it, you know, fat uh, fasted versus versus fed, it, it probably doesn't actually make a difference to what's being burned during that session anyway. Um, but then I, I guess if, if people do say like higher intensity, um cardio or, or workouts in a fasted state and and they do say burn say more fat during that session because maybe they're because they're fasted there's obviously some shift then in substrate or you know fuel utilization later on in the day would that be correct because at the, at the end of the day it has to be a calorie balance potentially right so if you look at high intensity interval training and most of that 
that's fueled during that is more on the carbohydrate end of the spectrum. And then they have something called EPOC, right? So excess uh, post-oxygen consumption or exercise post-oxygen consumption that says that, oh, because we kind of elevated our metabolism a little bit, we've got this slight elevation that kind of persists for a period of time. And that's like 100% fat use. Therefore, all you people, if you want, you know, body comp changes, you should be doing high intensity interval training only. And, you know, we've seen this go through the physique uh, communities. And now what I've seen is people kind of pulling back from that, back to <laughs> a more moderate approach. Um, if you look at the studies for the EPOC effect, in my opinion, it's really tiny. It, and I think there's a huge amount of error in those assumptions too. Because how you would do it is you would have some people come to the lab, you would put them on a metabolic cart, and you'd be like, all right, exercise super hard, do some wind gates or whatever you're defining it as hard exercise. And then we're going to come back every so many hours and we're just going to measure your metabolism, see what percentage of it is used as fat and what percentage of it is used as carbohydrates. And is it still kind of above what our baseline is? The hard part is you would literally have to have someone hang out and live in a lab to get a high frequency enough to get, in my opinion, an accurate amount of what calories they're actually burning. So I think it's a real thing, but at the end of the day, I I don't think it's really going to add up to a massive amount of calories being burned. I think there's a lot of errors that go into that assumption, especially some of the studies that have looked out at 24 to 48 hours. Uh, the one study I thought of, you have a bar at 24 hours and a bar at 48 hours, and they just draw a straight line between the two. I'm like, oh, here's our area under the curve. So it's mm -hmm. very sensitive measures you're looking at, and you're extrapolating quite a bit uh, with them. Um, however, I do think high-intensity interval training can be very good, right? If we back all the way up and we go, okay, so we've got someone and we know they're going to, you know, do a show in a year. One of the things that I'll look at is what is their actually VO2 max? So what is the size of their actual aerobic engine? Because we know that if their aerobic system is very poorly developed, that they're just not burning as many calories. And so one of the main things that's related to trying to burn more total calories from fat is actually what is your VO2 max. So I actually look at cardio more for, yeah, maybe we're burning a few calories with aerobic stuff, but I want to see what is the adaptation I want to get from that. So I'll start people on more of an old school, just aerobic base building, moderate to easy intensity. And then once they're better at that, then we'll probably add some more higher intensity interval training. And then even higher intensity interval training you, again, you want to look at what is the output, like how much work were you actually able to do? And if it's really high intensity interval training, you're not going to be able to do it for 10 minutes in a row, right? It's so like the Tabata study gets wielded out all the time of, oh, look at this Tabata study, this high intensity interval training. And that study, like the baseline for what they did was 170% of their VO2 max. So if you've ever gotten on a bike or a rower and done 170% of your VO2 max, you're not going to be able to do it very long. I think if I remember right, it was 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. So it's an invert of more work and less rest. And when they set it up, it was never designed for even the high-level athletes to even complete all of the rounds. So what I see in practice with some type of very advanced protocol is the quality of work they're doing is just dropping off really hard. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather have people do what is very high-intense work, and I usually do much more complete rest allow them to recover, and then let's see if we can get to maybe 5%, 10% of that output again, and let's try to repeat that so that we're keeping the quality of work high because the quality of work is what's going to determine our overall adaptation. So I'm chasing more an adaptation of pushing up their VO2 max overall to allow them a higher training volume, to allow them maybe a higher percentage of using fat and not just as you know something that's just going to burn a bunch of calories. Yeah. So ju just to clarify for the listeners who, who may not know, so, so VO2 max, uh, Mike, do you want to describe what that is? And maybe some people think that VO2 yeah. max is you sprinting as fast as you can and maybe just Yeah. So VO2 max is just simply the volume of oxygen you can run through your system that's at a maximal level. So our aerobic system in general runs off of oxygen. And the fuel for the aerobic system could be fat or it potentially also could be carbohydrates. The anaerobic system is classically carbohydrates only. 
doesn't necessarily need oxygen. So if you were to do uh, a 1RM, that's considered more of an anaerobic type event. After that, like all the energy systems get just <laughs> completely goofed. And the thing that blew me away recently, but even five years ago, was that the aerobic system is actually your support system for all your other metabolism. So something that would be very considered anaerobic, like not using oxygen, would be an all-out sprint for 30 seconds. All right, so if I'm sprinting really hard and I'm going as hard as I can for 30 seconds, like even most textbooks will say, oh, that's pretty much just all an, an anaerobic event. But you take like a moxie or an oxygen sensor, and I've done this, you stick it on your quad, and you watch how that muscle starts using oxygen. And what you see is within seconds, the oxygen level in that muscle starts going down. And at the end of even 30 seconds, it's depleted to like 80% of what it was when it started started right so even in something that we consider anaerobic sprinting lifting there's still very much an aerobic or oxidative component to that <clears throat> so one way to measure that <coughs> excuse me is <clears throat> what is your vo2 max so <coughs> excuse me <clears throat> that is just the level of the development of the aerobic system so if you want to say well how much weight can you lift? Okay, let's look at a 1RM. So what is the maximum load you can lift for one rep? That would be more on the anaerobic type side. So the aerobic, the maximal number you can get for the development, how big is that system, is your VO2 max, would be the measure you would do in a lab. Mm. So so usually that would be expressed as someone, say, running on a treadmill, and it's like probably a pace they can keep for a certain amount of time where it hits kind of a peak, right? Right. So there's different protocols. Um, most of it's going to be running, potentially rowing, potentially biking. Those are probably your top three. Mm -hmm. And you're correct. You want to move as much muscle mass as you can. It's very much an exhaustive test, right? So you're, what you're looking at when you look at the, the fancy devices and your metabolic carts, there's a couple different markers that are considered a formal cutoff but you're literally watching your oxygen use overall go up and then it literally will hit a plateau, right? So you may be able to eke out a little bit more performance behind that. But when we look at the actual data, you're not pulling any more oxygen from the system to run through metabolism to accomplish mm -hmm. that. So that kind of that plateau then is considered your VO2 max or the maximal volume of oxygen that you can run through. Yeah. So, so essentially what you're saying is that if someone improves the, their aerobic fitness in, in layman's terms, I suppose, that they can then actually do more volume or recover more between sets, even though resistance training is predominantly anaerobic or is, is you, you're not using oxygen per se. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. So what we see is, um, so you can look up something called repeated sprint ability. Uh, which is a formal way of measuring it using sprinting. Um, but in the gym, if I have like person A who has a very low VO2 max and person B who has a very high VO2 max, and we compare them lifting. So person A with a very low VO2 max, as it starts getting into higher number of reps, they're going to have a much harder time completing that amount of work. They're also going to need a lot more rest period between sets now. So the volume or even the density of work they can accomplish over the course of, say, an hour is going to be less because that aerobic system is what's kind of repleting a lot of the ATP and the energy that's being broken down during the lifting. And you compare that to someone who has a very high VO2 max, let's say, assuming they're both uh, similar twins, they've got the same muscle mass, same genetics, that person will be able to then shorten their rest period and still keep the quality of work that they're accomplishing much uh, higher. And as you get into, if you do something crazy like 20 rep squats or, you know, fun stuff like that or German volume training, whatever, you'll be able to uh, do a higher quality of work. And what I've also seen is that the cost is less. I mean, if we start looking at heart rate variability or we look at how much time does it take you to come back into the gym and do that same session again, what I notice, like across the board is that the higher someone's VO2 max is, assuming their rest of recovery is good, they'll be able to train again sooner. 
right? Because they're repleting and they're able to recover much faster than someone who has a very, very low level. Mm. It sounds like one of the benefits of uh, anabolics. So uh, you can get that by just uh, sure. <laughs> just being fitter. Um, one question I had, which is is a bit unrelated, but it's not every day I get to speak to an associate professor, is uh, <laughs> um, is is metabolism local to the muscle? So, like, let's say I'm sitting mm. here talking to you, but I'm just doing some bicep curls. Is it is it localized in that limb? Because when we're doing these tests, like VO2 max, etc., where we're, you're using your whole body, so it's like, right. Is that yeah? Like? No, it's a really good question, and it's one that I thought a lot about over the last probably five six years. So much so that I actually have a metabolic cart in my garage. I've got a three Moxie setup. So a Moxie device is a device that's using what's called NIRS, so near-infrared uh, spectroscopy. Um, so if you've seen the little things you put on your finger that look at uh, oxygen levels with the little LED, little red light in there, it's the same idea, but we're going to slap it on top of the muscle, and we're going to run this beam of light through, and we can get a rough idea of blood flow. And then because of the change with the... Um, the red blood cell, when it has oxygen versus not having a lot of oxygen, right? So if you look at your veins, they look a little bit blue because they have less oxygen in them. Because of those changes in color, we can see percentage-wise how much of those red blood cells have oxygen and how much of that it, they don't, right? So if we look at a working muscle in theory, we've got uh, oxygen-rich blood flow coming in. Let's say we're reading you know, 80% saturated. And then if we measure on the way out, Let's say the muscle is super, super active. Oh, wow, that level now has dropped to maybe 10%, right? So the 70% difference, that's the oxygen that's been extracted out of that by the muscle. So with that system, you can then put them on different places. So I could put one maybe on my right quad, my left quad, and then sometimes they'll put them on like the deltoid or a non-working muscle. Let's say I'm doing a leg press, for example. And what you'll look at then is a question you asked, which is a really good one. Is it all just a local effect, right? Because if you would have asked me maybe three, four years ago, I would have said, yep, yeah, I know there's a central nervous system involvement. The nervous system is recruiting the muscle, but it doesn't matter. It's just an anaerobic event, right? We don't, who gives a crap about oxygen? It doesn't matter. VO2 max, you can train for that. It's just a waste of time. I just want bigger local muscles. That's all I care about. And then when you look, you'll see different mechanics that start to happen. So if you have someone who's a very, usually a high level, let's say you're doing a squat, you're doing like a 1RM, they may be able to contract so much muscle tissue that they temporarily can even occlude the arterial blood flow coming in, right? Not just the venous blood going out that it causes pooling um, for a split second. Now, if that happens routinely, we've got an impairment in oxygen to the muscle. That's probably not going to be the best for performance. We could argue maybe for hypertrophy, that might even be a little bit better. Uh, but now let's extend that. Let's say you're doing a 10-rep set. So at the end of the day, we know that the main driver for hypertrophy is probably going to be volume, maybe muscle damage, maybe some local metabolites. Those are a little bit debatable. But we do know that the more volume in general you can do, the more tension you can get on that muscle and recover, that's going to be a positive thing. So for our 10-rep set, we actually want oxygen and as much blood flow to go through there as we can. So we want the muscle to contract enough to get the performance, the load lifted, but we maybe don't want it enough where we start occluding blood flow because that's going to limit nutrients coming in. It's going to limit oxygen also coming in. So the argument is like if you look at um, like some CrossFit athletes, like so some of the CrossFit athletes who look to be probably the most jacked athletes, a lot of times they're not the most elite level competitors, right? And one of the arguments there, my buddy Evan uh, from Training Think Tank has done some of this testing, is that maybe they're just hyper occluders, right? They can contract so much muscle that they can occlude and stop some of that blood flow for a period of time. And that maybe for hypertrophy, that might be okay. But if you're talking about like a, a strength endurance type sport, that's actually going to be really bad. So I think it goes all the way back to what is your goal and what are you trying to accomplish? If your goal is to just add as much muscle as physically possible, 
I think you can get by with it, maybe occluding some of that blood flow and maybe having a little bit of a drop in performance, and you might be okay. Because hypertrophy is this kind of really weird, almost like a side effect type thing, right? Because you can have so many different methods that you can see. You can do blood flow restriction. We can see good train uh, and hypertrophy with that. You've got some people that do better on low reps. You've got some people who say, no, 20 rep squats is the only way to get your you know, legs to grow, right? You've got all this variety. And I think there's differences within each one of those groups that allows them probably to respond better to certain variables. If you expand out and you go into more performance-based sports, you have the luxury of it being a little bit more specific. If you're a track athlete, we can time everything. If you're a CrossFit athlete, we have like standard workouts we know you need to do. Um, so to answer your question, I think it's all the above. But as you go into higher rep ranges, I think it becomes more important to see what locally is going on. And there's been some hypothesis that at some point, maybe the cardiac system is actually limiting the amount of work that you could potentially do, right? So take 20 rep squats again. I don't really think most people are going to be limited on those last few reps by how strong they are. It's normally their cardiovascular system. Now, again, that's a, an extreme example from a two-rep squat to a 20-rep squat. Um, so it depends on, I think, what you're doing. And then probably, you know, experimentation, what rep ranges do you tend to respond the best to, what volume ranges, and then whatever you can do to elevate your performance as high as possible at that point. So if you're someone who says, you know, my legs only grow when I do 20 rep squats and man, I am like after rep 12, I'm just gassed the whole time. You could argue that maybe you get some more benefit from cardiovascular training to make the cardiac system, not your rate limiter there and make the muscle the rate limiter. Um, but again, that's a lot of that's all extremely uh, hypothetical. <laughs> Hypothetical yeah. at this point. Yeah, that's that, that was a good, a long but good answer. And I, I wasn't looking for any kind of practical advice. It was more just uh, a mechanistic question. What I had you here. Um, so so thanks for going into that. Yeah. So um, another thing that we we briefly touched on at the beginning was um, heart rate variability. And this mm -hmm. is yeah, this is another one of the main things that I heard you speak about. You know, a couple of years ago. And like you said, you've you've done some work in your PhD on it. Um, would, would you like to explain what heart rate variability is? Yeah. So when we do an average heart rate, we get some data, right? So you, you get up in the morning, you take your average heart rate, and like, oh, cool, I'm at, you know, 52 beats a minute, whatever. Um, if we take that data now and we look at how much different one heartbeat to the next is, right? So most people would assume, okay, if I'm at rest and I'm just measuring my heart rate, that it's going to be 52 beats a minute, and then it's going to be 52.1 beats a minute, and then 51.9, right? It's going to be very, very tight within this average. Um, unfortunately, if that's true, you, you're probably not doing so well. Someone who's very healthy, what we see is 52 beats a minute, 49.7, you know, 53.1, 52.5, 51.5. Like you see these fine scale oscillations in your heart rate even though you're just hanging out at rest, right? So years and years ago, they thought, oh my gosh, that's just noise in the system. We're not measuring it um, accurately. And what they found was that little bit of variation, we can use some advanced math, heart rate variability, and we can now actually measure that. So how much of this little bit of variability do we see present? What we find is the more fine scale variability we have, that's a marker for more parasympathetic tone. The less variability we have, that's a marker for more sympathetic tone. So what heart rate variability is doing, it's looking at the status of your autonomic nervous system. So your autonomic nervous system generally has two branches. The parasympathetic is the rest and digest, or kind of like the brake on your car. If I push down harder on the brake of my car, the car is going to slow down. So if I increase parasympathetic tone, push down on the brake harder, my heart rate is actually going to slow down. My fine scale variability is going to go up. On the other side, we have the sympathetic system, like the gas pedal on your car, the stress uh, fight or flight type response. If I push down harder on the gas pedal, heart rate is going to go up, contractility help increases, other things like that happen. So I've got the parasympathetic, which is like the brake, and the sympathetic, which is like the gas pedal. 
So heart rate variability tells us the status of those two in the autonomic nervous system. And we can see changes in it over time. We can get a resting, an average heart rate, and we can get a score of heart rate variability that tells us what percentage of that is more parasympathetic or more uh, sympathetic. So it gives us an idea of the stress that's involved in the system. Mm. So I heard you mention before a reason why it would actually be more variable when someone is, say, less stressed or, or, or has a more parasympathetic tone. Um, is that to do with the if someone's in a, a kind of a stress state or a heightened state of awareness like training or, or whatever, that they need this continuous regulated flow of oxygen through the body? Is that correct? Or, or what's the reason kind of. for the, the variance? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good question. So the reason, which gets even more geeky, is if we look at how is the heart rate controlled. So heart rate is controlled by little tiny cells in the upper right atrium called the SA node or sinal atrial node. So the heart is super cool that if we pull cells out of the heart and we put them in a, a little dish and we watch them, they will go off and they will beat at a certain rate depending upon where we pull them from. So if we go all the way down to the bottom, sort of the ventricle, and we pull these cells out, they'll randomly go off at around 40 beats a minute. So pretty low. If we go up a little bit higher, they'll go in higher. If we pull them off from these specialized cells called the SA node or the pacemaker of the heart, they'll actually start going off at a rate of 100. So University of Minnesota did this. You can look up uh, something called visible heart model. They've done, I think, 13 hearts now that were not suitable for transplant. They've taken them out of a human and they've reanimated them in the lab. So they put them with different type of perfusates and they've reanimated them in the lab. So if the heart is just beating on its own in the lab, it's gonna beat at a rate of 100. So most of the time, us just sitting here having this conversation, we're under what's called uh, vagal tone or parasympathetic tone. The car always has some little bit of break on it. It's actually lowering our heart rate as we're having this discussion. So the vagus nerve comes into the SA node, and there's a very, very short, tiny space there. And it's able to regulate the heart rate to really, really fine degree up to a rate of around 100. If we look at the sympathetic side, we may go, okay, well, how does the sympathetic side work? The primary mechanism is through the adrenal system, right? So little glands that hang out on the top of the kidneys. And if something really stressful happens, like if you're driving in your car, and all of a sudden, like, you just barely avoid a car accident, you'll notice that, you know, time tends to have these weird properties. And you'll also notice that there's a delay of maybe, like, two or three seconds where it happens. And then all of a sudden, like, boom, like, then your heart rate is, like, super, super high. Reason for that delay is if we want to really elevate heart rate well above 100, we need the adrenals to put out uh, norepinephrine or epinephrine, right, so adrenaline. That's going to flow through the bloodstream, and it's going to bind to these little specific receptors on the heart, or uh, what's called beta agonists. It's going to bind to them, and that's going to increase then our heart rate. It's going to increase the contractility. But that process is going to take, at best, a couple seconds because they have to be released into the bloodstream, flow through the bloodstream, and then attach to receptors on the heart. The vagal, the parasympathetic, the nerve is literally right next to those cells that control the heart rate. So the vagal influence, that parasympathetic, allows really, really fine-scale control of the heart. So when we do a heart rate variability test, especially something called a time domain test, what we're actually looking at is we're primarily looking at the effect of that vagal nerve on the SA node cells. So we're primarily looking more at kind of the parasympathetic side. So the other part that's related to that is if we're sitting here like that car accident's going to happen and we, our brain goes, oh my gosh, we have to elevate heart rate super fast. We need to do it now. The fastest way is to remove the brake 100% and your heart rate will immediately hit a rate of 100. So from 100 down to whatever your resting heart rate is, we have very, very fine scale control of that. And that's primarily what we're looking at with heart rate variability, which is why when you do heart rate variability measurements, like a vast majority of the time, you'll do them at rest. And when you look at heart rate variability during exercise, especially like some high uh, intensity interval training, 
it's normally all just completely sympathetic, right? Your variability almost always goes away. That's because you're at those high heart rates. You're very, very sympathetic driven at that point. So long-winded answer to answer your, which is a really good question, is that we're primarily looking at the parasympathetic side because that has really, really direct fine scale control over heart rate up to a rate of about 100. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And, and I guess for uh, general recreational athletes or, or, or people who, who train, um, wearables and devices and technologies is yes. becoming more popular and more accessible, cheaper. Um, I, I have a, one of those uh, polar straps that I use when I run. I have oh, a, sure. I have a watch, and you know, they can track heart rate variability. The, the first question is, how accurate are these? And then also, what you know, even if you can track it, what can people do with this data? Because I mean, people know when they're relaxed, and they know sometimes when they're stressed. But there might be many different shades of gray in between that. And how can they use this data to maybe? help with their lifestyle, their their nutrition or the training, et cetera. Yeah. So the best thing to do for heart rate variability, so this fine scale variability, which is going to give us a mark or a status of our autonomic nervous system, is to do it first thing in the morning. So I have clients um, get up, use the bathroom, do whatever you need to do. Um, most people will do the measurement seated. If you're a really high level endurance athlete or obstacle course race, I've got a couple of those athletes. Uh, they'll actually do it standing, but you'll do it seated. Um, I primarily use an app called iFleet. So instead of Athlete, it's iFleet. They're over there in the, the UK out of London, and that's on my phone. So I'll put my heart rate strap on, and then I'll sit there. I'll turn the app on, make sure everything works, and then I'll sit in a rested state just breathing normally for about one to two minutes, and then I'll just hit start. It'll take 55 seconds to do the measurement. I'll breathe in and out to this little uh, dial that goes in and out. And then it'll tell me on a 1 to 100 scale what my score is. So the higher the heart rate variability score, the more parasympathetic you are. The lower the score, the more sympathetic or stressed you are. The nice part about doing it first thing in the morning is that's going to be the most stable uh, period of time. Because unless you did too much ambient, you're probably not making bacon and eggs at four in the morning or running around outside painting your house or doing weird stuff on ambient and stuff. You're probably just laying in bed sleeping, right? And that's probably going to be the most consistent eight hours to replicate from one day to the next. And you're also at a state of rest when you get up. So just do it first thing in the morning. That'll tell you your status of where you're at. It has little context indicators. You can load what was my nutrition, how do I feel, etc. And the nice part is then you can look at accumulated levels of data. So over time, then I'll have people run it for maybe three weeks and then go back and look to see what are some of their main stressors. Oh, yeah, Monday's workout was really, really hard. Yep, every Tuesday morning, my heart rate variability is showing me that I'm more stressed. Oh, wow, it looks like I don't actually recover from that until like Thursday morning, right, in the worst case. So it gives you an idea of some of the patterns that you can see. Um, if you look at during exercise, I don't think heart rate variability is all that useful during exercise. The only things I use during exercise are potentially heart rate, uh, which can be useful. And then I'll also look at how fast heart rate can recover. So if I wanted to do something with online clients, I do a lot. Let's say they're going to do um, what I call the death by front squat. So they're going to do like four or five sets of 10 reps on a front squat. But I want to make sure that they're recovered before they do their next set. And I'm not there watching them. I don't know necessarily how well they're going to recover from it. So I'll say, okay, do the front squat. I don't care how high your heart rate gets. It's going to be a set of 10. Once your heart rate then comes back down to, say, 85 beats per minute, then do your next set. Right? That's a biometric method I got from my buddy Cal Dietz. So that way we ensure that you're hitting the state of rest, and then you're going to do your next set. So that way the quality of work stays relatively high. Because like, as you know, right, like you're probably not going to need much rest between set one and two. You're probably going to need a lot more rest between set four and five just because of the accumulated fatigue. Do you then, think oh, – yeah, I was just, just going to ask, do you, do yeah. you think with like a, a – say a uh, someone who's been tra a, a trained athlete, so someone who's let's say at, at least two years or so of training, do you think they're – their kind of natural response to rest times, like I feel ready versus mm -hmm. the the actual 
objective data does that match up quite closely or do you think that actually if you if they track these things it would be maybe a little bit off and it would be a bit more accurate for them what i find is that in general they appear to be more accurate and you can do it yourself even without heart rate right so if your performance is dropping right so i generally program in uh, rep ranges so i'll say okay do the heaviest load that puts you in a six to eight rep range with uh, one rep in reserve or one RER. So you're not, you still have one rep before you would hit absolute failure. Yep. But I want you to go heavy enough to hit like six to eight reps. So let's say they're doing deadlifts. They're doing, I don't know, 315. Ah, I got six reps in my first set. Cool. I rest for a while. Cool. I got six reps in my next set. Oops. I didn't rest as long. I got three reps. Okay. So that tells me you probably need to rest a little bit longer. So if you look at your output from set to set, and assuming your effort is the same, your RER is the same, you'll be able to tell immediately if you didn't rest enough. Now, again, at some point, it's going to kind of go off a cliff and you're, you're just going to be done. Um, but what I find is higher level athletes tend to be much more consistent with that um, over time for the most part. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at some point... The metabolites and lactate is going to build up where you oh sure so you're just, not going to do that forever <laughs> yeah yeah um so so again i guess the question will be then and i'm just i'm just kind of questioning the the hrv and how we practically apply it what's the issue with being slightly more parasympathetic I understand if you're not recovered say from a, a leg session you don't, want to, you don't mm-hmm. and you're not ready to go again in the context of somebody that would say train at their back on Monday, they train their chest on Tuesday, or they might do upper or lower. They're they're not going to be fully recovered from a, a CNS perspective. Do you, do you think that uh, would you say would you take that into account and say okay, well we know we trained legs yesterday, but it's local, there's more localized DOMS or whatever. Uh, so, but we're doing upper body today, and yes, you're probably not fully recovered. Um, do you think then like would that person's um, HRV be always? affected negatively or i would say there's let's say they're they'd be slightly more stressed out because they're never really 100 percent recovered would you would you say that no we need to get back to baseline or we need to reduce training volume if it's if it's not getting back to to certain levels and because obviously if someone's training a lot there it's never Mm -hmm. really going to come back down to as if they're completely rested right it depends so if i have someone where depends on what i want to do right so in general if i look at most people I'm going to write six to eight weeks of their training program. Uh, week one is going to be super easy. Um, week two, we're just going to slowly add more volume and density, kind of like a wave-like mm-hmm. fashion. And if I've been working with them for a while, my goal is to have program the amount of work that they're doing, that their HRV may oscillate a little bit day to day, but the seven-day average is going to stay pretty constant, right? So week one, it's going to be constant. Week two is good. Week three now, week four or five, let's say you're doing a six-week cycle. So week five, I may be like, okay, I'm really going to push them hard. I'm going to do five or six sets. I'm really going to ratchet the volume up. By the end of that week, I actually want to see their average HRV going down, right? I want to accumulate kind of some sympathetic stress. I want to temporarily overreach them a little bit. And then when we do the taper, we're just going to slash their volume down to two to three sets with an AMRAP set normally. And then their HRV is going to slowly accumulate and I'll be back up to normal again. Mm -hmm. So if I did it correctly, I normally won't want to see a lot of HRV changes the first couple of weeks. But when I really push their volume, I do want to see a change in HRV then. So with new clients that I don't know how much volume or where they're going to be able to handle, I literally start with like one to two sets week one. And then the next week I go to three sets. And then I go to four sets and then I go to five sets and then I go to six sets. I go all the way up till their HRV literally goes off a cliff and they feel achy and they hate me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, that's probably about, okay, I know that this is their volume threshold. Right. And with some athletes, you know, that may be training, you know, four or five days a week, you know, three sets, you know, maybe four sets Um, with higher level. I worked with some pretty female, relatively competitive um, professional uh, fitness competitor, or I think she did, she ended up doing fitness now, but she did physique before. She was doing six to seven sets, you know, but she's been training for, you know, 12 to 13 years at a very high level too. So she could handle more volume than any guy I've trained before too. 
you know, so there's a lot of variability within one person to the next, but that gives you a way within one cycle to figure out, okay, where is their threshold at? And now each time I program, I'm going to try to get to that threshold and just a little bit beyond, and then we're going to kind of reset and we're going to kind of go back up again. So it mm -hmm. gives you a guidance to, because if you work with like highly competitive athletes, they're like, no, coach, I want to do more. It's like, no, your performance is dropping. Your HRV is in the tank. Despite what you think, like, I'm not going to push you anymore because your body is telling me that you're, you're kind of maxed out right now. Yeah. And to pull it back to basics a little bit, because I know people often will track things, but not necessarily understand why they're doing it. What, sure. what, what's the problem with, let's say someone who's not a really super high level athlete, but they have a, yeah, that their HRV is affected because they are they they do train, but they're also a VP in a company and mm -hmm. they fly around the world and they don't get much sleep. What what's the problem with having slightly say being slightly stressed out a lot? Yeah, so when I started with it, oh man, probably seven or eight years ago, doing daily HRV metrics, my first goal was like, well, I'm you know, working with a little bit more higher level athletes. I'll just do it in them. You know, it'll help tell us their training volume, like we just talked about. And then I was like, well, I kind of want more data, so I'm just going to start doing it with all my clients. And what I realized very quickly was you kind of have two groups, right? You have the higher-level athlete who their lifestyle stress is, you know, pretty controlled. They eat by a clock. They get enough sleep. They, you know, they do all the things we talk about. And their training stressor is probably their number one overriding stressor, which is if you're a professional athlete, that's exactly what you would want in a perfect world. Then you've got, like, the other group of people, which is more reality, is that their lifestyle stress is probably higher than their training volume stress. So with those people, I then use HRV to tell them where their other stressors are because most of them have no awareness of that. You'll ask them, like, you know, the example you had is perfect. Like, ah, do you get a little bit less sleep? Yeah, 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 but I'm fine. Like, okay, but you realize you were in, like, three different cities over, like, five days. Yeah, yeah, but that's not a big deal. I do it all the time, right? So they'll rationalize away but if i can show them a graph of hey, here's your stress level and it's like doing this you're like oh and then when they rate each one they may rate um sleep is always like super low right so i used to argue with people about sleep all the time it's like you know you would do better you know if you just got another hour or two of sleep they're like yeah yeah, yeah whatever you know and now i just like yeah okay let's let's just see where you're at <clears throat> so i send them a log of their self-report of their sleep and the self-report of their stress. And they look at it and I just literally send it to them. And I'm like, Hey, what do you think's going on here? They're like, Oh my God. Like when I don't sleep enough, my stress gets really high. I'm like, hmm. yeah, I never knew that. <laughs> it's just like this light bulb goes yeah. off when you show them feedback that's from their actual body's response. So yeah. for lifestyle changes, I found it's much more useful. And then the flip side is like, okay, let's try to go to bed 30 minutes earlier. Now, if they're really chronically sleep deprived and they're getting five hours a night, is that really going to move the needle a lot? Probably not. I know they're going to get better, but they may not feel better. But if their HRV starts going up or not tanking as hard, we can then show them data like, hey, you know, this past week you did really good. You went to bed 30 minutes earlier. Hey, your HRV isn't dropping nearly as fast as it was before. Oh, cool. So the thing that I'm doing that sucks that I hate doing I can see that it's actually having a physiologic improvement. And so now I'm much more likely to kind of, you know, hang in there and, and stay with it as opposed to, ah, I know I didn't feel any better. I'm just not doing it anymore. Yeah. So it, it, final question for you. Yeah. Because um, I know we're just about on time. Is So if, if someone's HRV is, is, is higher, um, or, or they have these kind of, they're constantly stressed with the coping. So they might have like, you know, higher levels of, of cortisol or, or epinephrine, these things that you already mentioned, if they're getting by or coping, can these things still negatively impact like higher circulating levels of cortisol? Can they in, impact body composition and health over the long term? Because a lot of people probably listen to this uh, they might think, well, yeah, I get, it's fine. I can cope with it. I'm managing it. I'm, my training maybe isn't being affected as much as I think. The hard part is they'll never know until they run the experiment of doing the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's plenty of data that shows that, you know, less uh, sleep is definitely going to affect longevity and health. Uh, from a body comp standpoint, 
It just depends on how well they manage stress. You know, some people are okay. They can still kind of stay within their caloric areas. And body count-wise, yeah, they might be okay. Uh, health status, yeah, I bet if we look at blood markers, there's going to be some pretty wonky stuff like nine times out of ten. Um, the caveat, too, is that a lot of it is super nonlinear. Like when I was doing my PhD, I was a, I was a disaster. I was taking caffeine power naps in the back of my car to finish. Like I had some blood work done. My testosterone was like in the 200s. Um, luckily, my other blood Caffeine markers, in your blood. Yeah, caffeine <laughs> levels were super high. Um, and when I got done, it honestly took me three years, probably if I'm honest, to get back to baseline. But during that time, you could argue, like, I made it, I did the things, I, you know, I was doing okay. So what I've seen in people is that the body has an amazing ability to compensate. The downside is that that compensation is going to come with a cost at some point, especially as you get older, especially the longer you do it, and that the, the results are really nonlinear. So what you'll see is people are okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, and then boom, I just went off a cliff. I'm lying on my couch drooling on myself for like six months now, and I can't figure out why. <laughs> so yeah. that's what I find. And it, it's hard because, like, you have discussions with those people, and they're like, but I'm doing okay. And it's like you are, but you don't know what it's like to feel any better, right? If you've always felt, like, kind of crappy, you don't know what it's like to feel any different. Like the Rangel guy, because we live in Minnesota and it's cold in the winter, is that if you're outside and it's like 20 below Fahrenheit and you walk into my townhouse and it's like 65 degrees, you're like, holy crap, it's amazingly warm in here. It's like 85 degree difference, like instantaneously. But if you're sitting in there, to most people, 65 degrees Fahrenheit, is it's, it's a little bit chilly. You're like, oh, it's a little bit colder in here, right? But you don't notice it right away because there's not that comparison difference. So your yeah. nervous system only learns by those kind of comparison differences which is why when people are in that state, it's it's harder to get them to kind of make changes too. Yeah, I, I think I personally noticed it with because I because I do natural bodybuilding, I've, I've and I've got my blood work done for for just for per personal reasons to sure interest to be interested when it's being quite low, like you said, or even lower than that, um, and then being normal when I'm when I'm fatter. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can <laughs> even though it still feels normal when it's low. It's 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 I don't feel like like different really but it's complete it is different when i'm much higher in body fat in terms of energy sleep mood uh, libido everything oh, yeah. is just but if, if i was just constantly in that state of, of lower testosterone i i just wouldn't know that there's anything better and um, so it's it's definitely a very good point you made there so yeah. the nice thing about that is you have a comparison too yeah exactly right, you've got before you've got okay i'm gonna get on stage and i feel like death and then i've got after Right, so you've got the high, the low, and then back to normal. Or a lot of people, if you just plucked them out and they're just stuck in the low all the time, they're like, I don't know, this is just normal for me. You know, and then after, like pretty much everyone I've worked with, I'm sure you've had the same thing. They're like, oh, I feel so much better now. Oh my God, I felt like trash. I didn't really realize yeah. I felt that bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're just coping. Um, yeah. Because they got to. Um, but uh, I know I said that was the last question, but this is the final one. Is that? Yeah, no worries devices so i want to touch on this because i know there's a lot of trackers and things that could you mentioned that you use the chest strap and that's what mm -hmm. i was using as well but there is things where you can put your phone your finger over the light on the phone there's also right. uh, ones on the wrist are, are these accurate depends um some of the newer data on the camera app uh for marco shows that it probably is pretty accurate um so kudos to him for doing the research on that the wrist ones, I mean, I wear a Garmin watch like 99% of the time. It's okay in general for heart rate at the lower heart rates, but as you get higher heart rates, it may not be super predictive, and it's a lot slower um, just because of the optical. I know they've changed it. They're using a red light, and they're trying to make some different changes with it. But most of the time, if you're doing higher levels of exercise, I still tell people just take the old-school electric uh, chest strap, and then you can pair it to the watch. So you don't necessarily mm. need to have your phone around. So if I'm doing heart rate-based interval stuff, I will pair the Bluetooth from the, the heart rate strap to my watch, and then I'll use the watch so that it's running off of the heart rate strap. Um, everyone and their brother now is trying to do heart rate variability off of the wrist and other locations. With the finger, with the order. The, right the finger sensors are pretty pretty good. 
Um, I have an aura ring. So aura ring is pretty accurate because of the close proximity to the blood vessel. Um, the downside is it's accumulating overnight when you're sleeping. So if you have a high-level athlete who's very, very parasympathetic dominant, you may not see heart rate variability change much, but the measurement itself is, quote, accurate, just may not be useful in some people. So I'm still biased to having some type of dedicated device to measure it um, because you also need to know the context. So having a device that tells me HRV during the whole day, even if it's 100% like dead nuts on accurate, well, what was I doing during that time? If it says, oh, your stress was super high. Oh, yeah, that was like three, you know, 3.15 in the afternoon. I'm doing, you know, reps with 3.65 for deadlifts. Of course, it's going to be super high. <laughs> like, I want it to be stressed at that point, right? Yeah. So without the context, it, HRV isn't, like, in my opinion, super useful. Um, and that's a caveat where people run into. So, again, I think just a one-time measurement in the morning, just do it then and just not worry about it. If you want to track heart rate and maybe heart rate recovery with some other things, I think that's useful. But uh, right now, that's probably about at the, the limits of it. Awesome. It's been, it's been really great to chat to you. Um, yeah, thank you for all uh, the good questions. I really appreciate it. Those are the good ones. Yeah, I, I really like going into depth, into depth, especially people who, who know about physiology. I could just sit here and ask you the most abstract, <laughs> unuseful uh, questions all day. Well, it's um, good to speculate once in a while. It makes it fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so where can people find out more about you, uh, what you do, your your program as well? Yeah, so the best place is probably going to be the website, which is flexdiet.com, uh, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. So that's for the Flex Diet certification. There'll be a way you can get on the wait list up there. That'll put you on to the daily newsletter list. And just uh, hit reply once you're on the newsletter list and tell me you're on the podcast and we'll send you a free gift. So that's probably the best place is uh, flexdiet.com. I have a bunch of other stuff too over at uh, miketnelson.com. Yeah, your, your podcast is really good if people want to learn more. About oh, thank you. Kind of stuff yeah, we have the Flex about. Diet podcast too. And then yeah. I'm also on Iron Radio podcast every Saturday too. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. I'll leave all that information in the in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.